Welcome, podcast fans. This is Still Drop Everything, and I'm still Dan Holzman, your host. Welcome to another episode, episode number 35. Very exciting episode because I just got back from El Paso, Texas, the International Juggles Association's annual festival, number 69. And number 70 is going to be in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And exciting news, I'm going to be festival director. That's right, your very own Dan the Man Holzman will be festival director. So you don't want to miss that because there's going to be surprises, stripper poles, bounce house, birthday clowns. Okay, all right, I'm just kicking around some ideas here, so um, don't, don't, don't quote me on anything. But what I do want is I want a lot of feedback from the listeners. If there's anybody you want to see, any special guests, any special features, please write me at danjuggle at gmail.com. If you yourself are special and want to be considered as a special guest, let me know you want to come. Let me know you want to be there in Cedar Rapids, and I will try to make that happen. For the rest of you, come and join me. 2017, because it's going to be epic. All right, enough about that. Let's thank me again with my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. So, if you have a show, if you have a career, you want a better show or a better career, you want some help, you don't know where to turn, don't go to Ghostbusters because Ghostbusters lost $70 million. Come instead to Dan Holzman's Brain Drizzles Comedy Academy. That's its new name. I just made that up. Okay, enough preamble, enough rambling. Let's get on to our podcast with the nice suit, the fast hands, the smart mouth, or some order like that, I'm not sure, of Matt Ricardo. Today I'm lucky enough to talk to the man with the fast hands, the smart mouth and the nice suit. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Ricardo. Hello there. And Matt, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from uh, Southend, which is about an hour outside of London uh, on the beach. I'm not actually on the beach. Great. Another guest from across the pond I had on uh, Steve Rawlings. I'm sure you know Steve. I know Steve very well. Lovely fella and uh, another very eccentric type of juggler. Has certainly his own style. Certainly. Now let's go to this. So it says fast hands, smart mouth, nice suit. And since this is basically a juggling podcast, let's start with those fast hands. Where did the art of juggling first rear its head and how did you experience it and what made you want to do it? I was a, um, and I think this is something common to a lot of jugglers, I was quite a sort of nervous, lonely teenager. I was into solitary pursuits. I was into video games and computer programming and stuff that you would just hide away in your room and do. And then one year, my parents took me away on holiday to a, a northern seaside resort uh, here in Britain, uh, Whitby in Yorkshire. And there was a folk festival on, which was mainly just sort of folk groups. And, and a thing, I don't think you have it in America, I think called Morris dancing. Which I won't go into because it's way too complicated. I, I, it's the bells on the on the ankles and the it's, yeah. It's so weird. Yeah, we have that at the Renaissance fairs, more ah, okay. dancing, but not really in general entertainment. It's an odd thing, hmm. but yeah. So there there were street performers there, and there was one juggler. There was a there was an act called the Flying Salami Brothers, who were a sort of band of of street performers who all did something different. And the the lead guy, the mouth of the group was this young man called Ricardo Salami, and he was a juggler. And for the first few days, I became their biggest fan, and by the end of the week, I wanted to be him. Mm. Not just his juggling, although, yes, his juggling, but also the fact that he... Because he wasn't a particularly spectacular juggler, he was just doing little three-beanbag tricks. But he had the mouth, he could hold the audience, he could make them laugh, he could make them care. And... Um, I totally, I totally had a huge crush on on the whole idea of being that. So by the time I got back home, I went to the pet shop at the end of our street and bought three rubber dog balls. And my dad got me a book on juggling because my dad was a librarian. And away I went. And how old were you at this time? I would have been about 16, mm. 15, 16. Yeah. Okay. So it's a very impressionable age. And I, I know what you're saying about being that nerdy lonely kid who who wanted some kind of pursuit he could do on his own. I, I wanted to get into magic initially myself, but it seemed like magic you had to show somebody. You had to be with people. <laughs> and juggling you could just kind of be in the backyard and, and experiment on your own. Did it immediately kind of take root and all of a sudden this became your, your main passion? 
Pretty much, yeah. I mean, at that point, I was just starting to go to college, and I was studying child psychology. So it was still a couple of years away from even the idea that it could be a job. But but you're right about the differences between magic and juggling. With magic, you need to have somebody else there to know if the thing you've learned has worked or not. Whereas with juggling, you know it's worked, if, even if it's just <laughs> you. So you know if you're getting good, you know? Yeah, I remember the last trick I bought was one of these things where you had a cigarette, and uh, I don't, I'm not giving away any magic tricks. I'm not a magician, so I guess I'm not bound to the code. <laughs> but somehow it attached like the back of your finger, so you could have it, and then by extending your fingers, it would kind of be hidden behind your hand. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would, I got one, and I, I did it to my mom or my dad or whoever. And then you realize, okay, now I can't show them again because they've already seen it, and now I need more people. There's only my dad, and, and I don't want to show my brother because he's not really exactly my buddy at this point. So when I found juggling, I could go back in the backyard and grab some oranges. I could just learn on my own. Did, was there someone who taught you, or just this book was your, your teacher for a while? Yeah, no, there was nobody that, that ever taught me. I'm one of those people that doesn't learn well from other people. Mm. Everything I've ever learned, I've – and my wife jokes about this. I just decide I'm going to learn something and just sort of go into my cave – and then come out a year later and I can do it. I, I'm, a, I'm a real solitary person in terms of creating anything, really, writing shows or learning skills or, or anything like that. Now, do you think the people who learned on their own, like I wasn't really exposed to much juggling. I think I didn't see another juggler for three or four years uh, until I saw Chris Cremo on TV. Now, do you think the people who weren't exposed to like the YouTubes and the, the massive jugglers you can see today, do you think they're more creative or, or sort of are lucky to have that start where they're forced to be creative right off the bat? It's, it's weird, isn't it? I don't want to sort of – I don't want to sound like the, the sort of crusty old vaudevillian saying the kids today have got it easy, but they've certainly – you know, YouTube's such an amazing place to find reference points for any kind of art <laughs> everything. form. You know, yeah, everything, yeah. yeah. So that's amazing. I, I think it depends on the person you are. I think perhaps if you're in it to be creative, you'll be creative mm. anyway. If you're in it just to find something you can do and get away with, you'll find a way to do that as well. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it is what you bring to it. Yeah, perhaps perhaps so. I mean, I think certainly I, I, I remember when I found London's juggling shop, which at that point was... Um, the back room of someone's house. Mm. But it was the only place in London, probably in the country, where you could get juggling supplies. And on my first visit there, one of the things I bought was the Karl Heinz Eaton Big Silver Book of Jugglers. Sure, yeah. And that was, I mean, it's it's hard to describe, but in the UK, in the 80s, only three, t- well, four TV channels, no internet, nothing, no access to anything that's happening in America or elsewhere in Europe. So that was the first time that I'd seen all of the different things a juggler could be. Yeah. No, I thought uh, a juggler was either... I saw two guys. I saw Bobby Sandler, who could sort of juggle three balls and ate the apple and rolled it off his head. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm much better than him. And then I saw Chris Cremo. And I thought, oh, my God, he's much better than me. <laughs> but I didn't see much in between. Yeah. And there is a lot in between. There's a lot in between. <laughs> So what, was this in the early 80s that you there's this London shop? Or it would this? be the mid-80s, the mid yeah. And was there any kind of a, a group that you eventually found and, and started juggling with? Yeah, there was. I, I mean, and, and this is a, a, such an important part of, of my sort of professional development. There was a, a juggling workshop that happened on Sunday afternoon in South London. And when I was at college... I would on Sunday. I would go to the juggling workshop, and just every every juggler in London was there. Hobbyists, beginners, kids, and some of my people that became my peers. You, Sean Gandini, mm-hmm. you, Steve Rawlings, and all these people were also there. So I would walk in, and and I would be at that point, sort of, I was doing maybe four balls, three clubs, getting quite good at Diablo at that point, and then I'd see Sean doing seven ball pirouettes, and I'd see. Steve balancing crazy stuff on his face. And it was so nice to see that and then be able to have a Coke with them in the cafe and talk to them. And, and they were all really friendly and welcoming. And yeah, suddenly there's a family that I found. And when did you start thinking about uh, the performing aspect of it? 
it was again it was from there um i met a guy there called dave evans who he was 14 at the time and he was a good juggler is still a good juggler um good club juggler and we became friends pretty quickly partly because we liked each other and partly because i really liked his sister's best friend mm. who didn't have any interest in me but that was you know sure important. sure um okay and yeah and then one weekend he he said uh, so yesterday i went to covent garden and did a show you should do that so the next weekend i did it was that simple it was just someone who i saw as being sort of similar to me in age and in ability and and saying sure. here's a place you can go and at that point i was on the dole i was claiming unemployment benefit i'd finished my college course i had qualified as a child psychologist and then told my parents that i don't think i want to do that i think maybe i want to be a juggler uh, of course they were thrilled but now your dad was a librarian was there any other show business types in your family at all both my parents in my early life were librarians and then and then my mum went into another job but they were both very sort of suburban job parents <laughs> except that they both also were really active in amateur dramatics mm. and my mum was a playwright and my dad was a stage fight choreographer so these were all kind of hobbies not jobs for them but i certainly was brought up in a in some way sort of slightly theatrical environment but they weren't looking at this as like oh a great opportunity they kind of like oh a judge no hmm. they they i remember vividly um after i'd been working at covent garden for a little bit my mum said to me you should have something to fall back on sure that's what and i remember say, yeah that's what mums say right and i i immediately said and it's, this was one of those moments of of great wisdom that somehow came out of my mouth and I said, no, because I, if I have something to fall back on, I won't do this. I won't commit to it. Right, right. I need this to be everything because it feels in my head like it should be everything to me. So it needs to be everything to me. That's a, that's a nice feeling, though, isn't it? When you find something that you go, this is it. This, this is my thing. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you a sense of completion. And I think that's a wonderful, especially if you're a young person. And maybe there's obstacles. Maybe there's things you look at like, oh, this is going to be tough. But you go, you know... This I could do. I could make a life of this. I could be happy with this. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and 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 Covent Garden for me. When I arrived as a as a teenager in Covent Garden, within a few weeks I realised this was absolutely it. This this family of mm. insane performers who who were so welcoming. And I mean, there's a lot of talk about street performing cliques being sure. sort of quite sort of bullying and tough. And it is tough. It should be tough. But they were generally really welcoming and i suddenly had all these friends who i admired and could learn from and that was yeah that i mean especially because i like i say i'd been in my earlier teenagehood i'd been quite a lonely nerdy kid so to suddenly have a lot of friends who in my head were the coolest people mm. that was kind of great yeah well it's the best thing ever i mean people think about street performers and there are those who protect the pitch and will run you off and Especially like groups of break dancers or particular areas. Uh, Why is it always break dancers? Because there's lots of them. <laughs> there's lots of them, and yeah, and they're quite physically sort of imposing a lot they, of the they time. They tend to be from a kind of a rougher sort of place. Like you know, a lot of us came up, like you say, like these nerdy teenagers who have this hobby, who got into theatrics and want to perform, and they're like, "We can make money. Get out of our way." And it's uh, they don't always want to share. Mm. But it's like. It's like but, but I want to say that the group of street performers that when you start doing busker festivals or, or like like this Belfast Festival of Fools I did this year, you, you got to admit the, the, the family of street performers has got to be one of the greatest groups of people to be associated with ever. Absolutely. I love it. So that's why yeah. I, still, I still do them. Even though we were talking before the podcast, they can be quite difficult. And obviously for a juggler to be outdoors, to be exposed to the elements – to have sort of a random schedule of, of this pitch, that pitch, moving your stuff here or there. There's a lot of downsides, but the hang is, is excellent. Oh, the hang is the best. I mean, I, I spent 15, 17 years as a sort of full-time Covent Garden street performer. And every weekend morning, sitting in Greasy Spoon cafes mm -hmm. with a bunch of other buskers talking rubbish for a couple sure. of hours... 
I mean, though, those are, I'll go to my deathbed knowing that those were precious times. Absolutely. And, and now as I, I, like you, I still street perform and I absolutely adore it. The freedom you get on the street where you've got 45 minutes on a street to do whatever the hell you like. Oh, I love it. And to have this family of other street performers who are spread across the globe, you know, so I'm about to go to, uh, to Toronto, uh, next week. Right. And I know that when I go there, I'll see people that I haven't seen for a couple of years. And the last time I saw them, I think was in Australia. And it's kind of amazing to have this network of friends and colleagues that you, you bounce around meeting. And who was the crew in, in Covent Garden back in the late eighties? Who, who were some of your contemporaries back then? Um, uh, well, Eddie Izzard, um, he, he went on, I don't sure. know what happened to him. I don't know really want, I don't know. He's I even think famous maybe, over here. He's even, he's like, even famous <laughs> over there. I mean, he's kind of a, he, He's gotten some strange things. He's, he's like a marathon runner now or something or endurance he's, athlete. He's a crazy person. He, crazy, yeah. He, he just decides to do something and, in, and, and we'll do it. But to the degree um, of like 50 marathons in like 50 days or just something insane. Yeah, literally superhuman feats. And he's not an athlete. You know, no. he'll be the first to say he's, he's a comedian. He's like a trans, not a transvestite, but kind of a cross-dressing comic who's also an actor and, and mm -hmm. you wouldn't think physical fitness would be the first trait you would think about with him although having said that I, I saw him a couple of years ago and just before uh, I saw him he had been for a long run so I guess you know I guess he does and um, but he was in a juggler did he uh, high unicycle or something what was his act his act yeah he did the first half of his act was like any good traditional street show just complete rubbish sure sure the crowd then, build, yeah the crowd build and then his sort of the main body of the act was yeah he'd get on a five foot high unicycle uh i think manacled hands mm. and would escape yeah would escape from manacles okay. on top of a unicycle it was a decent act yeah sure sure um so yeah my contemporaries at covent garden i mean a bunch of people that no one's heard of except except other street performers so there'll be like one percent of your audience going oh yeah him oh, well it's okay i mean it's, it's a lot of it's for me because i've heard of this fella uh i'm very dan centric people will tell you on this podcast so <laughs> i'm interested and i've heard of this guy uh pepe oh pepe who was like a follow a follow performer <laughs> and so there were great there were sort of legendary characters who mm. whether we know them or not that sort of the archetype of the uh, these types of performers are sort of fascinating characters because he was sort of the king for a while, but then ran into some tough times. Pepe is the archetypal character. Pepe could be like a, a Dickensian character. His story is so perfect for a piece of fiction, but I and lots of my friends saw it happen. When I arrived at Covent Garden, Pepe was this uh, cool, blonde, pretty uh, mime artist who was doing a following show and was doing some of the biggest shows on on that pitch. And if we explain a follow show, that's basically like when tourists would would pass by, you you mimic them, you mock them, you you bring them into bits of skits and stuff. So it's a very improvisational style of performing. Yeah, it is. I would say it's it's street theatre in its most literal and pure form. You're using your venue and the people that inhabit it to at the backbone of your of your theatrical work you know you're 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 satirizing people walking by and then playing with them and and leading them into little scenes and it, when it's done well and pepe did in his prime do it very well it is it is quite magical he's transforming a space and making it something but he was always one of those people that would make a you know make a crap load of money in a show and then have drunk it all by the evening he was always very arrogant as well mm. and to an extent he could back it up he was sure. good but it, he was very unpleasantly arrogant he was always a bully everybody when they first arrived got tested by pepe <laughs> and the thing is the thing is he wasn't you know he wasn't anything to test you he's a piece of string so the amount of times he had attitude and he thought of himself yeah he thought of himself as the king of Covent garden right and then as he got older, he drunk more, he became less of a good performer until the point we are at now is that he's no longer a performer. He's a homeless person and he's he's a tramp and he looks like a tramp. And it, it's incredibly tragic and incredibly sad to see that amount of wasted talent. He still hangs around at Covent Garden. You know, when I occasionally walk through, quite often I see him there. He doesn't do shows because he's unable to. Right. He lives, you know, in a bit of a sort of fantasy world. He's obviously got a lot of demons, a lot of addictions. So, yeah, on one side, it's 
it is easy to be quite harsh about it and say, well, you know, it was his arrogance that got him there, which it really was. But on the other hand, when I first arrived, he was this young, blonde, cool, Mm. amazing performer. And now he's just he looks like a crumpled paper bag. Well, there's certain a certain magic on the streets, and there's a certain time period where someone can be the king of the streets or the king of a particular pitch. But it's hard to hold on to that. It's hard to be that guy for a long period of time, especially if you're a hard partier, especially if you let the ego part of it, because the control you have to have over the audience and sort of be that person to 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 have that all that focus and attention. We you know we had Robert Nelson here, who was uh, I think had a lot more maybe sort of self-possession and charm and wasn't quite mm. beset by demons but the sort of combination of, of arrogance you need to be that guy but then as it kind of sort of diminishes because that it always diminishes over a period of time it's tough to move to the second step and you certainly have been a guy who's maybe you started on the streets but you transition into theaters and, and sort of theatrical work and this idea of being the gentleman juggler and if we look at the next part of your of your quote the fast hands but also the smart mouth. When did it become important to you to be a good talker and how did you develop the skills of the patter part of it? Well, that was certainly through street performing. There was uh, somebody that I'm still friends with who's a very important sort of influence, a fellow performer called uh, Paddy, whose stage name was Famous Bramwells. Mm, I've heard of him. I don't, I don't know him. I've heard of him though, yeah. He's a lovely guy and he was, when I arrived at Covent Garden, wet behind the ears, I always kind of saw him as my sort of big brother there. And... He, his act, there was just, it's one of those acts that had nothing in it. You know, it was just sure. nothing. He had a, a little magic trick with some envelopes and, and a lighter and a borrowed piece of money, but really there was nothing there. And he'd be the first to admit that. Sure. But what there was, his ability to, to go out and just talk rubbish, but beautiful, <laughs> eloquent, funny, engaging rubbish for 45 minutes. So I used to share pictures with him. I used to watch him and he, without knowing, he taught me to talk. And, you know, most of the performers, people that I admire are comedians or are, you know, they talk. Right. I like to talk. (laughs) So, you know, you talk about my work in theatre. All of my theatre shows have quite had quite heavy, not just stand up comedy, but but storytelling elements. I'm always amazed at the guys who who are that style, because I feel for myself, like when I'm out on the pitch, like I'm working hard, like every second to just trick, trick, this, stunt, this, do this, watch me, watch this. But there are other guys who can get out there who really you're thinking they're not doing much, but somehow they're keeping the audience, the focus, the charm. Like uh, Chris Lyman comes to mind. You know him, Chris? Oh, Lewis. Chris, yeah. <laughs> Another guy, or uh, uh, Herbie Treehead. Yes. These guys just have, have mad charisma and just sort of are able to be present in the moment, they're just so watchable. Yeah, I think I think there are several kind of ways to engage and keep a crowd on the street. Yeah. And I think part of that is finding the archetypes that a street audience want to watch. And I think one of those archetypes is the eccentric, is the idea that I've got to watch this because anything might happen. Right, the crazy and that's man. Certainly, yeah, that's certainly true of Chris Lynham and Herbie Treehead. You know, you look at them for five minutes and you're thinking, yeah, I'm watching this until this plays out because I don't know what's going to happen here and it might be on the news. <laughs> yeah, especially with Chris Lyman. I only worked with him once, but uh, I think also I worked with him past like his craziest times. I heard all these stories and legends. And I saw <laughs> him, I thought, okay, it's a bit tame for what I was expecting. But uh, this was... Oh, he will, he will hate you for saying that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I remember he did something with like a tuba and there's a lot of music involved and... Maybe he was experimenting with a different act than, than his usual, but he wasn't the, the wild, crazy man I was expecting. But this was maybe in the, gosh, in the, the 90s sometime. It was in, uh, I think, in Dublin at, at the, the, in the festival there, the Street Performer World Championships. That's what it used to be mm. called. But uh, it was just amazing, though, because then you see other people who they're doing a lot, but you don't care. Yeah. You, they just don't bring you in. So it's really amazing when you see the people who really understand how to be great Street performers. Yeah, yeah. It's it's and the, the character they have to have, and the it's really interesting. It's it's like any performative art form. You have to find a way to show the audience you, the authentic you, even if it's through a character. You have to find a way to show them the authentic you, so that once they see you and they decide that they will care about you, then they'll care about what you're doing. But if they don't care about you, it doesn't matter how many things you're juggling or how amazing your magic is or whatever. 
And were you always sort of drawn to the, the unusual stunts? I mean, were you always sort of drawn to the gentleman juggler style? No, when I first started at Covent Garden, I was quite a generic juggler. I mean, I, I think my finale was four sink plungers. Okay. <laughs> I, did some, I did some tricks with yo-yos. I did a little five-ball routine. You know, pretty oh, – I did some Diablo stuff as well. Pretty generic sort of stuff. And then – I mean, and this is, this is me being a, 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 a nerd again. Mm -hmm. I, um, I decided that I wanted to try, take it a little bit more seriously. You know, once I'd been doing it for a while, I started to sort of think, okay, let's actually – be conscious about what I'm doing with this as opposed to just turning up, doing some tricks and getting up enough money for a pizza. So I went to the library. I went to the uh, Westminster Library where they have archives, or they used to have archives, of a thing called the Strand Magazine. And in the Strand Magazine, mm -hmm. which was like a Victorian kind of listings magazine for London, uh, side note, Strand Magazine is where the Sherlock Holmes stories were first published. But it also, they reviewed travelling variety shows and musical shows. And they reviewed them in detail. So you could go there, and if you were willing to sit there for hours and hours and hours and days and days and days, you could read very detailed descriptions of old variety acts, including old juggling acts. And that was where I discovered gentleman juggling. Um, and as soon as I heard about it, I just thought, these guys seem really cool. That's a brilliant way of of presenting juggling. Instead of saying, I'm going to try a trick. I did the trick. Hooray! Hmm. Of just portraying a character how, where the way the character goes through life, because he is a juggler, is to be incredibly dexterous with all the things that you are just normal with. It's suddenly the juggler is is more like a magician. It's It's like a superpower. It's that's how you do things, but this is how I do the same thing. And it's much cooler. And that really appealed. Now, I remember when I first came across like jugglers like Chinka Valley, and you, mm. you read these stunts that they would do, and you're thinking, these stunts are just so much more intriguing. Like I remember he, I read one that he did where he would juggle a, a turnip, a fork, and a knife in one hand. And in his other hand, he'd hold a blowgun. He'd, he'd throw <laughs> up the turnip, he'd shoot it with a dart, he'd pierce it with the fork, and then you, you catch the whole thing as it fell on the tip of the knife. Fantastic. I tried to duplicate that for so long. And eventually I, <laughs> I settled on a, a cabbage and a battle axe and a, a blowgun. But to try to do three things and somehow throw the fork up into the turnip. So I'd go through those magazines as well. But sometimes I think there was stuff that was maybe a bit exaggerated. I agree. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's really fun looking back and going, actually, I don't think that happened. It's like that famous picture of Rastelli that where everything's on fire. Because that's another trick I tried to duplicate. Yes. It's the non plus ultra, the, uh, the famous poster where he's laying on his back on the giant fire star with the yeah. giant fire star on his foot. And the... I tried to duplicate that. And first of all, the position of the mouth stick is impossible. So I had to make it go way past the back of my head. And then I was reading about the fire restrictions in some of these old, you know, Victorian vaudeville theaters how very few people did fire. And uh, so the idea of him actually doing it on fire was sort of far-fetched. So I'm like, oh, I get it. Not everything they wrote about actually perhaps was true. That's true. My favorite is uh, the pictures of the old restaurant juggling acts where there's yes. four waiters juggling 50 million plates. And you look at it and you, you can just clearly see that those plates are just holes punched in a photo. Oh, yeah. Or they're, yeah, they're, or they're hanging from, from strings from... Or they're just too perfectly aligned to actually be actual juggling patterns. Yeah. Now, who were some of your favorite uh, gentleman jugglers? I mean, do you, I know you liked Kara. Kara is, is, is obviously the sort of godfather of it, and I talk about him in one of my shows quite a lot. I like, I like Felix Adonos because he just looked – he's so damn cool. You know, I got to meet him. Did, did you ever hear the story of me meeting Adonis? Oh, no. Tell me. Oh, yeah. I, I think I may have told it before, but it's one of the formative – because I also was a great – had a great attraction to the gentleman jugglers. When I came across, like, Bella Cremo and uh, Salerno and all these fellows who were doing these unusual things, it just really struck me. And so just even his name, Adonis, you know, like like, yeah. like an Adonis. And you, the poster of him with the, the suit of two different colors with billiard cues. And so I was very intrigued. And, and I was fortunate enough to know Karlheinz Zethen quite well and still do, but – I visited him in Berlin when we, me and my partner were over there very early for a, a very unusual job we did uh, for Adnan Khashoggi, who was this arms merchant. We, we didn't know at the time, but who brought us oh. over to Europe. 
so all of a sudden I was only like 19 or 20 and we had all this money and, and free time on our hands. So I went to Berlin to, to meet Carl, who I'd only uh, corresponded with. I never met him, but he was so gracious. He, he went to his apartment and uh, for like two or three days, all we did was watch videos. And I, I told him about my, my not crush, but my really mad admiration for the Sedanos. And he's like, well, you know, he lives in Vienna and you actually could go there and visit him. So my partner and I are like, all right. Carl Heinz somehow contacted Adonis, and uh, we went there. He met us at the train station. And I still remember, like, this crowd of people and this man sort of walking towards us. I go, that's him, even though he was quite elderly at this time. But his posture and his bearing was so obvious of a theatrical nature. He just <laughs> seemed so classy. And he, it certainly was him. And he took us back to his house, and his, his wife was charming. She was totally blind. had gone totally blind. And he, but he obviously adored her, and, and she brought us a plate of cookies, and we went in the backyard, and he did a little juggling. So <laughs> He still could do three balls with one hand. He did a little cascade, did three balls with one hand, a shower, some basic juggling. He didn't have any of his uh, props, and all we had were some, some, uh, some lacrosse balls at the time. But charming man, a wonderful visit. He, he uh, signed a beautiful poster for me that I still have, and it says, uh, to Dan from an old jug, <laughs> Felix Adonis. I think it was 1986 or so. Oh, I'm very jealous. But very memorable. A wonderful man. Wonderful man. But I, I think I met him and I met... Uh, Do you ever meet Rob Murray? Oh, I love Rob. Now, Rob Murray is, would be the number one, I think, influence on, on how I perform. Mm, I could see that, sure. Oh, I just adore that man. No, I, I never met him. I was friends with Paul Daniels. Oh, okay. And yeah. Paul would, would tell me some stories of, of working with Rob a couple of times. Apparently, when... Paul had him on his show twice, and I think by the time Paul had him on his show, I think certainly at one point he'd given up performing, and he had to sort of go and find him and convince mm. him to come back into performing, and very sad. But, um, yeah, Rob Murray's so good. He comes on stage not caring about the audience, not caring really about being a juggler. He just wanders on stage as if he's just taken a wrong turn, and here he is. And... He's such a beautiful, gentle, subtle kind of slightly sharp raconteur-y style. And, and he comments, as he's doing his act, he comments on how ridiculous his act is and, and what a waste of money it is. And it's so great. I love him so much. Good show, drummer. I barely yeah. even move my feet. <laughs> I'm a big there's, Rob Murray fan big Rob Murray fan there's, there's one clip where he does I think some tricks with plates and he just turns and says do you think variety will ever come back <laughs> oh he's, yeah he's so it. deadpan and, uh, and for the people who don't know uh, Paul Daniels was a very famous entertainer and presenter in, in, in England and Britain he, was, would you say he was sort of like the Johnny Carson or, or uh, in term, yeah, in terms of uh, bringing variety acts yeah. to TV, yes, certainly. I mean, he was he was Britain's most successful and famous magician, and for 15, 16 years, he had the big Saturday night BBC One variety show. So every night, um, uh, every week, you could see two or three of the world's best variety acts. So when I was a kid and a teenager. It was required viewing for me, obviously. As soon as I got into juggling, I, I just started videotaping the Paul Daniels show. And it was on his show that I first saw uh, Rob Murray, Chris Cremo, Natalie Antolin, mm -hmm. Air Jazz. Air Jazz oh, yeah. Air they had wonderful Jazz. spots on there. I watched that the other day. Yeah. yeah that... Pete, Peter, Peter Davidson's three-ball oh, routine yeah. just changed my life when I watched it. I have, when I have coaching, I have students. Sometimes I say, you want to see good posture? You want to see yeah. perfect juggling form of that style? Peter Davison. Yeah, you can watch that routine and just watch the legs, and it's still yeah. good. But there's some patterns. When you, you look at a certain pattern, let's say, like we call it the U or the box, you know, the one where the, yeah. the ball zips straight back and forth between the two hands, and the other ones go side by up straight on, on both sides. Yeah. Or there's certain moves you go, okay, that's how that move looks when it's done perfectly. Exactly so. Or when you're doing the penguins or whatever it is, you go, you want, because every trick can be taken to a certain degree. Like you can learn it. And you can do it, but is it really the perfect expression or the final expression of that pattern? When you see Peter juggle, you sometimes you go, "Yeah, that's it. That's as that's as good as it gets right there." So yeah, yeah. yeah. He, that Air Jazz was uh, did a wonderful. Uh, I think they also did their cigar box routine with uh, yeah, they did Kaziah Tannenbaum and John Held and the cigar boxes. They did the beach balls. I remember that. 
Fantastic. And yeah. so that's nice because we saw very few performers. And there's another very important person of, of your past because Paul Daniels unfortunately passed away this year. Am I correct? Mm, yes. Yeah. And I, I know there was a great loss because there was such an outpouring of love for this man from the entertainment community. Yeah, it was it was very sad. Um, and the thing is that in his not even in his later life, because his his show got cancelled because it was seen as being unfashionable. So he was seen as being unfashionable. Oh. So in the last couple of decades, he was he wasn't he, he wasn't he wasn't object of ridicule, but he nearly was. He was seen as being representative of a an age that had finished. Oh, sure, sure. Which is really unpleasant. A little passe, yeah. Because you know it's it's not as if anything replaced his show. There was that when his show vanished, Variety vanished off our screens for quite a long time. And to people like me and, and uh, a lot of my colleagues and friends, he was really important to our sort of personal sort of worlds of culture because of the stuff that he brought to our front rooms every Saturday night. Because he did genuinely travel the world. He went to Vegas, he went to Paris, and he saw acts at Variety Theatres and showrooms and brought them back to London. You know, and that was really important. And he was a very nice man. Well, it's important to kind of know what our influences are and, and who inspired us. I was reading in your blog that you had a, a good friend who also passed away recently, Michael Pierce. Oh, Michael Pierce. He was a juggler that we, we're not aware of in the in the States at all. So maybe he uh, was, tell us who he was. He was in no way uh, famous. He performed only sporadically. But again, to, to a, a sort of bunch of performers in London, particularly around my sort of generation, he was immensely important. I, I first met Michael Pierce, who would describe himself as a crazy old Irishman when I was at that, that Sunday afternoon juggling workshop that I, that I talked about earlier. And I, was, I would be there and he would come running up to you with Einstein-like grey hair and big thick glasses. He'd come running up to you with his Diablo and he'd just say, so, so, show me a trick, show me your Diablo tricks. <laughs> and you'd have to go, oh, oh what's my best trick? And, and then, and then he'd, he'd show you one of his and then he'd, but he had so much energy. He was so enthused about, about all these young people rediscovering his art form. Um, and he always told me to make a, make a list of the tricks so you don't forget them, make a list. So yeah, he, his story was that he, he was Irish. He'd, he'd learned to juggle, I think, when he was a teenager. Never really did it. He performed occasionally, but not really. Found himself in London in his later years working as the, the foreman on a building site, a, a construction site, which just happened to be around the corner from Covent Garden. So on his tea break or his lunch, he would go in the corner and see all these young people juggling. And he'd sort of saunter up to them and start offering advice. Mm. And they would go, who, who the hell are you? And he'd just <laughs> right. suddenly, you know, he'd, he'd take their props and, and show them how it's done. And, and then he started performing more. And so in the last sort of 15, 20 years of his life, that was the main body of his career, I think. Nice. Um, but he had a really creative mind. He knew his history. He famously won a, uh, a Best Newcomer Prize at the age of like 70-something. Nice, nice. That's, that's who I'm going to be. I'm going to be that crazy old guy. Who nobody nobody knows who just shows up at some pitch or some juggling festival like so what do you got show me a trick what do you got I, yes that's exactly right <laughs> that used to be me 40 years ago <laughs> <laughs> now let's get let's get on to your career though because you've had such a wonderful career we, there's a lot of backstory but uh you started doing these theatrical shows and your first one was called uh three balls and a good suit so we're back to the mm. nice nice suit again I like a nice suit. Yeah, oh, yeah, you look good in the suit, too. But when did you have this idea to kind of make it more of a theatrical and put these, these shows together? Well, I, I had been working at that point a lot in Europe. I've been working a lot away from home, doing a, the occasional cruise ship gig, mainly doing sort of fairly longish contracts in European variety theatres. Like what, like a nine-minute act or a ten-minute? I was doing uh, 20. 20, They let me wow. 20, yeah, just because... I couldn't cut it down, frankly. And it was nice and, and the shows were nice, but it meant being away from my wife and my friends and my home for too much. Right. So it started to, things started to wear a little bit thin. And I came back from one of those gigs deciding to quit performing. And at that point, I was also a very keen photographer as a hobby. And I thought, I think I'm going to be a photographer instead. So I started doing that i started winding down my gigs and 
pushing my photography gig and I started to get work and I won a couple of photography awards and it started to happen. And then I, I always said to myself, if I would ever quit before I'd quit completely, I'd go to the Edinburgh Fringe, do a one man show just quite so I could say that I had finish on that. So I wrote a show, took it to the Edinburgh Fringe and it did really well. And it won like a major theater award. So did you win the Perrier award or I, no, no, the Perrier award doesn't, uh, doesn't exist anymore. Oh, okay. But, um, I got, I got a couple of very nice reviews and I won, I think called the Herald Angel award. And I was the first ever, um, variety performer to, to get that. It's normally sort of for, for serious theater. And the show that I took up there, it was it was juggling routines, but it was also stand up storytelling. Um, I talked a little bit about sort of my life, about some mental health issues, you know, just sure. sharing, sharing for the sake of sharing. A one man really, show, yeah. a real one man show. Uh, yeah, a one man show. Exactly. Yeah. So I came back from that having learned that's a door that is open to me. You know, I, right. I, I'd always thought like a lot of street performers, I think, have a bit of a kind of slightly an imposter complex and slightly a kind of outsider complex in that we think, well, we're on the street because it's wonderful and free and great. But also deep down, perhaps we think we're on the street because that's as good as we can be. We, we, we couldn't really survive in anywhere else. You know, maybe there's a little bit of that to it. There certainly was for me. Well, I think also that that some acts don't have theatrical presence. That is certainly true. Yeah, like you put them out, you put them in a stage, and you go, "Oh, they're just juggling," but now they're taking that act and they're just on the stage. But they're not really sort of being in the theater and being like even uh, at our convention. There, there was certainly guys who were good jugglers. They didn't perform. They weren't theatrical. Yeah, and so it's hard to, unless you have that theatrical bent to actually perform well in the theater. There were certainly times that I've seen street performers work on a stage in a theater, and the first thing they've done is they've got the audience to clap and cheer. <laughs> right, right. And I've, I've wanted to strangle them with my hands. What are you doing? <laughs> Do some crowd gathering. There's still some empty yeah. seats, ushers. Bring some I know. <laughs> They're not even thinking. Right, right. So, yeah, so anyway, so I, I took this show to the Edinburgh Fringe that was, was going to be my swan song, and it became a whole new chapter and opened up lots of doors, and suddenly I was a theatre performer, and it was really nice. It was a, a whole new place to play, a whole new thing. You could write things, and, and, and yeah, from then on, I'm now on my third full-length one-man show, and it's the best one, which is means things are going in the right direction. Because <laughs> your second one was called Vaudeville Schmuck. Yes. And that's an interesting name for sort of a gentleman. So what, what do you mean by, of course, you know, being Jewish, I sort of know the term schmuck, but what, what does that term mean to you? Oh, it means exactly the same thing. Um, <laughs> like idiot? Like, like yeah, cool? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, f the first show was about my life and how I sort of how I got there. Right. And then the, the second show, Vaudeville Schmuck, was kind of about what it is like to be there. Mm. It was about what it is to be a juggler and people's misconceptions about what I do and how much there was a, a lot of comedy mileage was was used up by talking about how much easier it is for a stand-up comedian than a juggler. A stand-up comedian has an idea, tries it out on an audience. If it works, great. A juggler has an idea, practices for three years, and then tries it out on an audience. And, you know. So, yeah, that was about kind of, I get, yeah, yeah, the state of the art form. And, and at the end, it got kind of a little bit more philosophical. I talked about how nice it is to be on stage being part of a lineage of an art form. I, I talked about how... Sometimes it can be lonely being a solo performer on stage, but the, the beauty about doing a variety art form is that you're never really alone because there's the ghosts of all the people on stage with you who did that prop before you. You know, so when I pick up the cigar boxes, I'm on stage with WC Fields and with Bella Cremo because they've sure. all infused the art form up to the point at which it is currently being performed. So I kind of liked that element of it. And now your current show, Showman, is that sort of like... Everything comes together. What's, what's the current show mean to you? Yeah, the current show was a deliberate move to do a kind of balls out entertaining show. The first two were well, entertaining, I hope. Right, right. But, but were quite introspective in parts. Showman is, I kind of pride myself on if you book me, as I'm, as I'm sure you do, if you book me for a sort of 10 minute spot or a 20 minute spot in a club or at a corporate, I will go out and I'll come out fists flying. Yeah, bang, 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 knock them dead. I kind of pride myself on, on always trying to do that. And Showman was the idea that I will do that, but for an hour. Hmm. And, right. and and now the touring version, it's an hour and 15. Right. 
so yeah it was just the, the the only kind of idea behind it was to be entertaining and spectacular and dangerous and funny so yeah and one of your spectacular tricks that we can talk about which is quite unusual is a lot of jugglers or, or famous performers have pulled the tablecloth from under the crockery you know leaving it on the table but in your version you actually pull it off then you put it back under the yes crockery. Sir. How, how did that come about and, and what prompted that thought that that was even possible yeah, I, I'm. I am very proud of that. I mean, I think like most jugglers, virtually everything else in my act is not my creation or is a slight tweak of something that already existed. I'm not the first person to balance a stack of cigar boxes on my face. Sure, but you have your, your way about it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Putting the cloth back on the table. I'm. I'm very proud of that being fairly unique. And yeah, it was just that I was finishing my show by pulling the cloth out for about a year, and this is twenty odd years ago. If you're that kind of person, you know, the mind just starts working and you go, well, there's my finale. How would I top it? How right. would I go one, one better? And then as a joke to yourself, you sort of say, oh, you put it back. And then you take a moment and you start to think, could you put it back? Right, would right, that right. be possible? And at that point, I was living in a, in a tiny little bedsit, just a one-room place in North London. And I had this folding table, which when I unfolded it to practice, filled up virtually my entire apartment. <laughs> and I just started practicing. And it took a few, took a, quite a while for me to find out and discover the actual technique that you would use to do it, the physical way you would put a cloth back on. Right, sure. And I remember the first time it worked, which was probably more by chance than skill. I just sat down on my bed and went, oh, okay, that's <laughs> something. Just that first time a trick works, and it's like it's like the juggling god has said, right, you're not going to be able to do this every time for another five years, but I'm going to show you it once now, and that will ensure that you practice until you can do it. Because you know it can be done. You're like, all right. Yeah, exactly, exactly so, yeah. And I imagine that the table has to be fairly slick or something, or the surface has to be quite smooth, I'd imagine, to get it. Yeah, yeah, you can't do it on a sort of green baize card table. No. <laughs> But I've, you know, I've done it on a variety of different tables. The questions I always get asked is, is the crockery special? Is the table special? Is the tablecloth special? And no, none of it is. It's all real. That's the whole point. That's the point of the gentleman juggler is that it's common, common objects. Exactly. I once went to do a gig in Japan and I was there for a week. And on the first gig, the first show of the, of the week, I accidentally ripped my tablecloth in half. Oh, so uh, it's lucky that it's a real tablecloth because, you know, if it was custom made, I would have been completely screwed. But as it was, I just went to a shop and bought another tablecloth. And one of my favorite things about your website is your blog. And speaking of, of gigs in foreign countries where things have gone wrong, you have a story on there that's really, if people, well, we'll give a, a shout out to your, your blog is just what mattricardo.com. I mean, your, your website is. It's mattricardo.com. Yeah, yeah. And I, you have a wonderful blog and great photos. So I realized that it makes sense that you're, also a professional photographer, but you have a, a blog entry called The Worst Gig Ever. Can you give us just kind of a, a, a little, I love hell gig, hell gig stories. Can you, can you <laughs> kind of condense this one down and hit the high points of, of what you would call the worst gig ever? I, I would first like to point out they were, there were no high points. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so that's why it's the worst gig ever, but all right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it was, I'll try and make it quick, but it was essentially, I got asked by a TV show in Beijing, the, the official Guinness World of Records TV show in Beijing, if I would like to go over there and break a record. And if so, what record would I like to break? And I thought to myself, well, it would be nice because I'm known as the tablecloth guy. Right. It would be nice to be the guy that pulled the biggest tablecloth. That seems a good, simple trick that would look good right. as a brag, you know, and also look good on TV. Like a nice long, what? 10 footer, yeah. 20 footer? What were you, what were you I thinking? Was, I was going to go for 10 or 12 feet. Yeah, okay. that was the idea. Sure. So they went back and forth with my agent, uh, specifying all the details, how long it would be, how many things on the table, what, you know, all that stuff. It, it, uh, over the course of a few weeks, it got very detailed. I, they, I, I gave them the, the exact uh, sort of product numbers of all the right crockery to put on the table and all that stuff. So I, I flew out. I flew out to Beijing to do it. And when I get there, they take me to dinner and they're all sort of very friendly and there's other performers there and the other performers there look just the tiniest bit shell-shocked but I'm just assuming that's because maybe it's their first trip abroad or what and we go for a, uh, a little meeting and they talk about another trick they say we want you to to do a trick with two tables and how many times can you pull a tablecloth off of one table and put it on another table which is another trick that I do sure 
And I said, okay, that's not what we talked about. What's the problem? And they said, oh, we'll do your trick as well, but this is just another an extra trick. Right. So I kind of thought, okay, I'll do your trick as long as I get to do my trick. Yeah, they, but they've kind of sprung something on you, but all right, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. But you kind of think, well, I'll let them, I'll let them do a little bit of craziness. And then over the course of the week, it becomes apparent, and I'm not exaggerating here, that the whole thing is a setup. I start talking to all the other performers, and they've all been brought there under false pretenses. There's a guy, for example, there's a guy who, it's very hard to describe what he does, an Italian acrobat who does a thing. If you imagine a sort of barbell rack that goes up sort of three stories high with lots of hooks on it. Yeah. And he's holding onto the barbell and hanging from it. And he kind of jerks his body and moves the... That's the, called the salmon the, ladder. Yeah. The salmon ladder. There we go. So he was the current record holder for that. Right. Very strong, really fellow, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he was going to improve upon his record, except when he got there, they had the prop built to completely different dimensions. Mm. And it was dangerous uh, because it had it had unfinished edges. Oh. So when he did a rehearsal, he cut himself. Right. And there was a Chinese performer who had been spending all week practicing on that piece of equipment. So that guy could do it. Oh, so they set up to lose to the Chinese fella. Yeah. I got. And then there was a there was a girl who's who she was an acrobat and she walked on tiptoes on champagne bottles. Right. And when they got there. They said, oh, we haven't got champagne bottles, we've got beer bottles, which, of course, are completely different. But there was a Chinese performer Practicing who had been... beer bottles. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole thing becomes, oh, wait, it's a trap. And so, what, so there so, was a guy doing uh, the, the trick they wanted you to do? Well, there wasn't. Oh. Because, and I found this out later, apparently they couldn't find anyone to do it. But they had tried. So instead, what they had decided was they would have me go on TV and fail. Oh. So they had div- um, designed a trick... <laughs> That was impossible, essentially. Sure. And they weren't letting me do the trick that I wanted to do. So this went to and fro, and it, things got more and more stressed and fraught. And I just kept saying, if I'm not doing my trick, I'm not doing your show. You understand sure. that, right? And they said, oh, no, no, you'll do your trick. They kept uh, lying to me. And then it got to the day of the taping. And this is one of those big sort of shiny floored, massive lighting rig shows, big thousand yeah. people in the audience, enough space so that any record involving motorcycles and stuff can happen. You know, so it's a big studio shoot. Big production, yeah. Big production. So I'm there in the afternoon. We do a camera rehearsal. And, and as you know, the camera rehearsal is to duplicate exactly the shots that will happen when you film the show. So if it's not in the camera rehearsal, it's not in the show. Right. That's why it's the camera rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah, and my trick wasn't in the camera. <laughs> right. Okay. So I kind of went, okay, then I, I guess I'm going. So I asked for a meeting with the director at about two in the afternoon. And by 6.45, I was finally granted my meeting. And the show started filming at seven. And I think they deliberately left it that long right, right, right. because they, they thought I'd be pressured into going on TV. They thought I would be excited about going on TV. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't quite read you right. Yeah. They did not read me right. I am I, I am nothing if not a fan of being a dick. Right. Um, well, in the right situation, right? In the right, well, and also the wrong situation quite often, actually. <laughs> I think we're common there as well. I, I can <laughs> be a bit of a dick to myself, some, unfortunately, sometimes. So, so I went for the meeting with the director, and uh, I said what about my trick? And she just went nuts. Hmm. She just started shouting, saying, we never talked about a trick. What are you talking about? You come here with your ego. And uh, and everyone in the office was shouting. So I just calmly took out my phone and called my agent and said, just listen to this, listen to this. And I handed the phone over to everybody and they didn't know what, and they they were still shouting. And (laughs) and then I got the phone back and he said, just, just get out of there. We'll get you a flight. Go now. Oh, funny. Which was, what a great agent. You know, what a great agent. Sure, just sure, say, sure. Run. So I said to them, I'm just going to go now. And I think <laughs> they thought that I was still doing the show. Right, right. And I just, I just went to the dressing room, hugged all the other performers and said, I'm going to the airport. See ya. And went. And then I walked outside of the studio and realized that I was in the middle of Beijing in an industrial estate, minus 10 degrees, had no idea where I was or how to get anywhere. And that's the point where I, I thought to myself, I could be in some real trouble here. At least you still have your passport. Sometimes they take your passport, which is always... No, I had my passport. Good, yeah. Oh, this is the part I left out, was during the, uh, the, the shouting meeting, the director said, you will do the show, and if you don't, we will not pay you, which I expected. Sure. 
we will cancel your return flights. We'll kick you out of the hotel. And then she leant close to me and she said, and your visa maybe not work so well. Wow. And, Those little strong arm tactics. So that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty serious. So I, when I was outside the studio thinking, what do I do now? I, I just kind of found the youngest crew member that was standing around smoking, doing nothing, just right. some young sort of runner. And I, offered him 50 bucks to drive me to the hotel and he said yeah okay so he drove me to the hotel i grabbed all my stuff ran out of the hotel jumped in a taxi got to the airport what i didn't know at the time what i now know is that by the time i got to the airport and was queuing up to check in i still hadn't been booked a flight because Ooh, right because booking a flight a one-way flight out of beijing at very short notice that flags up all sorts of security checks oh right right so my plan was to get on the plane before they revoked my visa, which I figured they wouldn't do until after their show finished taping. Right. So I had like a window of three hours, and I, and I just made it. I got on the plane, and never have I been happier so here, to, to get on a plane. So you're here, once again, you're like a superhero again. You have your superpowers, and you're able to escape from the, the trap set to you by the devious Chinese TV producers. It was my little Jason Bourne moment, yeah. Yeah, I'm currently in negotiation to go to China right now. And the longer it goes on with the, the story changing and the, the thing being pushed back, when I'll get my contract and when I'll get my tickets, unless I want to go, to be honest. Yeah, it's such a shame. I want to go, yeah. Yeah, I really wanted to go. I, I've been to Hong Kong a bunch of times and absolutely loved it. And I do Kung Fu, I do Chinese martial arts, so I would have loved to have got knee-deep in the, the cultural side of, of that place. But yeah, it just became terrifying as soon as I arrived. But that's the idea of show business. We were talking earlier. There's the people you hang out with, the fellow performers. There's these gigs that, are, that you do that are your gigs. Like I see you're doing a, a tour coming up with uh, an entertainer named Brian Conley. Just just done. Yeah, oh, just, just done. done. Were you his support act and he was uh, an entertainer and he brought you along as a sort of an opening on a nice tour. It looked like like 30 dates or so. It was lovely. Yeah. And, be, and that, you know, the beauty of working with somebody famous is that you play nice big venues that are all sold out. So you can get a taste of what it would be like if you were famous. <laughs> so you go from that, you go to these gigs that are sometimes what I like to call hell gigs or gigs where I think I say you have to embrace the suck. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so if you go to South Korea and you're working outdoors at a, at a fireworks festival, <laughs> you better get ready to embrace the suck, you know? So. Oh, that sounds great. All right, let's, we're kind of getting towards the end. We've, we've already gone over an hour, and, and I'd like to uh, – you've got so many more great stories and things to talk about. Let's do a couple real quick because they're both things that interest me again, sure. and then, then I'll let you go. Because you have a thing about professional wrestling, that you, you, like, you like wrestling. I, I do love, like wrestling. I love the MMA. I don't, I'm not a wrestling fan. I also watch MMA. I yeah. love the UFC. Is there something about wrestling that really intrigues you from the show business aspect, or what about wrestling is your, is your thing? I think wrestling and sort of street performing and circus and variety are, are very similar. I mean, obviously, wrestling did, in fact, come originally from musical shows, but I think they're very similar. They're, they're seen as blue collar, uh, uh, lowbrow art forms by those that don't watch them. Right. But those that do watch them understand that the same as street performing, the same as uh, professional wrestling. If you watch it, you see that there's actually some very complicated uh, high level theater going on. I adore professional wrestling. When it's done well, it is the most some of the most powerful and and interesting theatre you can watch because it is simultaneously completely real and completely not real. The people, obviously, the fights are predetermined. Sure. The soap opera side of it, the characters, that is theatre. But they are doing, you know, when someone throws somebody off a top turnbuckle and they land on their back from a 10-foot fall, that is really happening. This is beautiful kind of synergy of real and not real. And when those two things come together, there's something special that happens. And I think it's the same as juggling is good for that because as a juggler, you try and make it look effortless. But of course, there is a struggle going on to keep these things in the air or to, to keep, the in my case, to keep my hat manipulation looking cool, the feet under the water are moving really fast. Right. When real and not real come together on stage, I think there's always something interesting that happens. And that's why I like wrestling. There's a little bit of tragedy behind it, too. Like, if you look at the lives of wrestlers, and there's that mm. movie, that great Mickey Rourke movie, The Wrestler, about when you get to the point where the gigs are, like, in the basement of the YMCA, and you're falling on a table covered with barbed wire for $5, and you've kind of gotten to the lowest end of the wrestling world. There's a tragedy to it that you go from these heights of these giant shows where you're adored as a star 
to sometimes sort of a broken existence at the end. Absolutely. I think I think everybody who's involved in show business can kind of relate to the idea of having momentary fame uh, that leads to to not longevity, that, that leads to those small gigs. And it, it's very hard. And to be a professional wrestler at, at the high level for people like WWE, I can only imagine what it must be like because we felt the fantastic endorphin rush you get from performing well to a decent sized audience. But if you're a wrestler, you've got the endorphin rush of performing to like 30,000 people, plus you're super famous, Yeah. plus you're probably really good looking and incredibly sort of an incredible specimen of humanity. Sure. Like Brock Lesnar is, is a pretty incredible specimen He's a ridiculous <laughs> looking creature. Yeah. Yes. But and also the, the you know, the endorphin rush that comes from all of those sort of theatrical elements of performing for such a large rabid audience, but also the style of performing you're doing is is a pretend fight. So you've got all the endorphins that that gives you as well. You know, it, it your body feels like it's fighting. So it, it must just flood the brain with all sorts of mental chemicals. Yeah, what I was thinking was, you know how like sometimes you're on stage and your, your endorphins and your, your you know, excitement will cover some pain that you're feeling or that you, oh, yeah. you, something happens and you're able to go, oh, I can just go through it. I imagine these fellas who basically their job is to sort of get beaten up every day that the adrenaline sort of carries them through the shows. But I imagine the next day when they have to get on that plane and go to the next show, I guess that grind of, of their, their lifestyle just takes such a toll. Yeah. Because a lot of them get addicted to painkillers or their... They're on steroids or whatever they need to do to get through these engagements. And at the end, they're just, they're just worn out as people. Luckily, as jugglers, we're not quite as asked to do quite as much damage to our bodies. No, that's, that's true. Yeah, it's certainly, a, for, for the wrestlers, it can be a very, a very harsh life. It's, it's not quite as hard a life as it used to be. There's, there's much more sure. sort of in place now for their well-being. But yeah, we got it easy. Yeah. Well, one more thing. Uh, we got a couple more things to cover, if you don't mind. and we, we can Sure. There's just two more things I want to get to. And one is this T-shirt you have for sale, which you've told me does not sell well. And I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but it might you be didn't need to, to mention our... that. No, no. I'm taking it. It might be of interest to our, our juggling listeners. Mm. It's a very juggling-oriented shirt. You have a shirt sale on your website, mattricardo.com. That basically it just has four names on it. And those names are Cara, Brun. Cremo and Rastelli. Mm. So four great jugglers, but also four very different jugglers. Why those four? And, and who do you think was going to be like, oh, this shirt is for me? I mean, was this for people because you had talked about these performers in your show? Or I don't understand this one, actually, this shirt. I'd, I'd like to have some great witty and, and smart answer. But that T-shirt is the result of being bored on a long gig in a hotel room and there being websites where you can design t-shirts. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, those four jugglers seem interesting. I, I like the idea of those t-shirts. It's that thing that the names don't mean anything to most people. Right, right. But if you know who they are, it's like a secret handshake, you know? Yeah, it'd be a good conversation starter. And are those are still available on your on your site? Um, they certainly are. Yeah. Okay, all right, great. And that brings us to our last uh, question. It was also a TV show. Because, um, you know, here we have a couple of jugglers doing very well on America's Got Talent. We have uh, Victor Key and Passing Zone are both uh, progressing through the contest, and they're being treated fairly well. I mean, uh, of course, Simon has said something like, I hate all other jugglers, but I like you. <laughs> sort of an offhand compliment. Because, because Simon has seen all other jugglers. And, of course, he has such a knowledgeable base of, uh, like, you, you know, when I saw Rastelli as a boy... <laughs> yeah, Simon's Simon's decades of experience and variety speak for themselves. I love when something comes on that that obviously we've seen a hundred times. I've never seen that before. Is, are those clubs? Oh, I know, <laughs> I know. You're eating the apple and juggling. You must be the most creative juggler ever. <laughs> I love it. But you were, have been contacted by Britain's Got Talent, and that's the show that you will not go on. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, I don't. I don't see the point. I didn't. I didn't get into this art form. I didn't decide to be an artist, someone that that doesn't earn much money, that but has the benefit of being able to create for right. a living, which is a beautiful privilege. I didn't get into that to impress <laughs> shows like Simon Cowell, who doesn't, you know, who don't know anything about my art form. It would be it, to impress him would be like jangling keys at a dog. I mean, <laughs> it, it, there's no glory in that. 
I've never seen that person jangle keys before. You must be the best <laughs> jangler ever. That's like a terrible Simon Cowell impression. That's not bad. <laughs> I guess. Well, man, this has been really, really fun. I, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. It's been great talking with you. We've never actually met in person, but hopefully someday we will uh, get together for a, a spot of tea. You... I certainly hope so. I don't drink tea. I've just, I've just failed as an Englishman, haven't I? And like, is that insulting? Like, oh, but a spot of tea. No, it's you know most most Englishmen would be up for that, but I've just never drunk tea. I'm a I'm a coffee man, or ideally scotch. Well, I'm going to end with my favorite description of you because this is from your website, Buble, by the way of Rastelli. I'll take it. That's nice, man. Hey, thank you so much for taking time and being on the Drop Everything podcast. A big thanks to the fast hands, smart mouth, and nice suit of Matt Ricardo. Thank you. My Pat. pleasure, man. Put a fork in it, we're done with Drop Everything Podcast number 35 with special guest, English gentleman juggler, Matt Ricardo. Thank you, Matt. Had a really nice chat with you and I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you have good success out there on your Canadian tour. I'm wishing you big hats and big crowds out there. Okay, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. You want to join the IJA? You want to check out their merchandise? Then go to juggle.org. And don't forget, who's going to be festival director next year? It's going to be me, Dan the Man Holzman. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, focused on one thing. Putting on the most epic festival ever. So you got to be there next year, 2017, in the exciting capital of Iowa. Is it the capital? I don't know. Don't even know anything about Iowa. All I know is... It's going to be epic. So, if you have any feedback, any special features or special guests you want to see, now is your chance to get involved. Now is your chance to let me know what you want and who you want to be there. So, danjuggle at gmail.com, my personal Gmail account. Don't abuse that. All right, let's thank our engineer, Karen Holzman. And don't forget, this was 35, so next comes 36. And drop everything, except when you're juggling.